Hello and welcome to Trees Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, we finally watched To Be or Not To Be from 1942, Ernst Lubitsch's black comedy about uh, the Nazis, uh, particularly the invasion of Poland. You've been on at me about this for a very long time. We finally agreed to watch it. I had a very good time. It's a masterpiece. It's Yeah, it's one of the great films. It's an amazing film for anyone who's interested in comedy because it's a film that gets comedy out of everything, right? I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about this film is the way that it gets humor out of rhythm, mm. yeah? Out of the repetition of things. I mean, there are recurring jokes in it that have to do just with the sounds of things. Ronansky, Ponansky, Plonansky, <laughs> right? Like at the, at the beginning, right? Uh, so, uh, and riffing on all that, like, uh, so the repetition of Schultz, or they call you concentration camp Gerhard, or, yeah, yeah. like kind of, you know, I, I mean, it's an amazing The thing about film. Um, it'll get a big laugh, the Jewish character yes. always says. Greenberg, yes. it'll get a big laugh, and then it comes back right at the end when it's, you know, if you get caught by the Nazis, it'll get a big laugh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Everything repeats in this film, actually. Everything is set up and repeats beautifully, including... You know, uh, the scene from, um, what's the Shakespeare? The Merchant of Venice. Shylock's speech. Do I not bleed? Yeah, which repeats three times in three completely different contexts and has three completely different effects. The last, not for humor, in fact. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an amazing piece of engineering, the film, yeah? Truthfully, I didn't think that any of those instances were, were designed for humor. Those three instances of the Shylock speech. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the strengths of the film is that it um, doesn't play absolutely everything for laughs, and it understands uh, where not to, you know, because like the invasion of of Warsaw is not a joke in and of itself, and the film doesn't play it as a joke. It plays the kind of absurdity of the Nazi regime or Nazi behaviour around it as a joke. It plays the absurdity of um, the way that Jack Benny is constantly looking for praise. As a joke, yeah. you know, so it finds these areas for humour, but the kind of central. It reminds me of something that um, Mel Brooks once said when he was talking about uh, Blazing Saddles, and there's a scene very early on where uh, I forget the the black sheriff's name, but it's before he's a sheriff. He's about to be hanged, and he said it only works as a joke if he gets away, which he does. The joke would not be a joke if you saw him hanged. Like that's kind of that. There's a line to draw. And this has, I think, a similar attitude. It it doesn't take it doesn't overdo anything, or it doesn't it doesn't look in the wrong places for humour. No, I mean, though I suppose it's a question of perspective. When it was released, yeah, it was thought to be in very bad taste. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, and I can understand that as well. You can imagine how it plays differently many decades down the line, because now it looks it's it's such a brave kind of thing to do work to work yes. to make. But at the time, you can totally understand how people go, oh, I don't know, not the same. Yes, yeah, I think... Uh, I'm not sure whether America was even in the war at the time it was released, actually. But I think part of the reason why the film was considered, you know, to be in bad taste is because, you know, aside from Chaplin, there had been... Hollywood had not really critiqued Hitler at all. Hmm. Or, you know... Uh, uh, so, uh, this, you know, this seemed as a very brave and daring film... And, you know, at a time 
when you know people hadn't quite chosen sides. I mean, people forget, but there were a lot of pro Mussolini, you know, pro Hitler groups in New York. Yeah, there was like fascist leagues all over New York. Mm. So now it was considered brave. Then it was considered in bad taste. Yeah. Yeah. And this is before all of the stuff was really known in a general way, right? You know. Um, About the Holocaust in particular. Yeah, you know. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and, and you know, kind of those things are made fun of. I mean, when, when Carol Lombard says, wouldn't this look great in my concentration camp scene? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Imagine the Nazis whipping me in this fabulous gown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, interesting, it's interesting to me that the one character who is very clearly identifiable as Jewish, although they never actually... I don't think they use the word Jew or Jewish, but Greenberg has a Jewish name and he's constantly... Uh, he's, he's associated with the Shylock sequence. He is obviously Jewish. Um, well, what he they, they kind of tell you because, you know, when... The critique that he makes of the ham actor is, what you are, I wouldn't eat. Yes, yeah, he does say that, that's right. Um, he is a really sympathetic character, and he's, like I say, he's the one who, in amongst all of the farce and absurdity, he grounds it, I think, you know? Yes. Um, well, actually, he and the other spear carrier... Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, that scene where they're walking in the snow, you know, and they say... Oh, imagine carrying a spear now. Yeah, those were the days. I hope they'll come back again. So what they're, what they're bitching about at the beginning that they're only spear carriers and they never get their big break. I, you know, in the middle of the film, they'd be so happy to be carrying a spear in the theater again. Yeah. And um, what you say about the film being uh, kind of clever and intricate, I really agree with, particularly early on, where having not seen the film, having not really known anything about it, I thought, oh, this the, the uh, developing romance between the pilot and uh, Carol Lombard is going to become the, the central thrust of a lot of the film. Um, and it really isn't. It fades away. But the way it's used is it has kind of double meaning. So he starts off with he's a pilot and he gets to know her. And then it's because he wants to send a message to her when all the, po all the Polish fighting in the RAF want to send messages with Selecki back to Warsaw, to all their loved ones, and he says, well, it's not my loved one, but it's it's this woman, and he says her name, and he doesn't recognise it, and that's where he realises, oh, this guy isn't who he says he is, because everyone knows this woman. So it's kind of, it starts off as this romantic subplot, but it develops into the reason he catches him out. And it, it's a way, and it's a development that you don't anticipate, or I didn't, you know, I mean, you've seen it a hundred times, but you know, I didn't see, yeah. oh, that's how it's going to go. I thought that was really clever plotting. Yes, everything is clever plotting. This is like a Swiss clock. Everything has its place. Everything is set up and gets a payoff and then gets another payoff and then gets another payoff. You know, I think it's beautiful. And the style of playing is just like a marvel, right? Like, I mean, the way that Carol Lombard says, oh, okay, love to see you, bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, and just changes, you know, she gets laughs out of just line readings, right? I mean, it's kind of miraculous, really. Well, that's it. He says something like, I've never met a woman like you before. I've never met an actress before. And she says, Lieutenant, this is the first time I've ever met a man who could drop three tons of dynamite in two minutes before. Bye. Yes. Be <laughs> what an amazing line reading. I loved it. I thought, oh, gosh, he throws it away so magnificently. And what you were saying the other day about the, 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 the increase in her 
you know, comedic abilities between 20th century and this is absolutely true. Like, she's so much more yeah. in control of her line readings, that sort of thing. She was kind of shrill to some degree yeah. in 20th century, but here she's yes. very, very different. She's wonderful. And Jack Benny, yeah, who plays her husband, he makes me laugh just with his body language. You know, the way that he comes out on stage as Hamlet and then settles down to begin to be or not to be. And he does this thing with his little stick insect legs where he puts the leg at the side. (laughs) (laughs) He's really, really good. I didn't really know him as a film star, you know. But he must have, I mean, clearly he was, because he's got top billing here. He was mainly a radio and television star. He was one of those comedians that had started in vaudeville as a comedian. And, you know, and then he developed this persona and so on. So, you know, he was mainly, he was one of the most famous people in America, one of the highest paid people, but it was on radio mainly, right? So That's how I'm familiar with him, because I am familiar with him yeah. to an extent. And I really like his TV stuff, and I think his persona is wonderful. Yes. But I just, I to see him playing a character I, I i guess i mean i suppose there must be analogs for it in modern day with kind of i don't know like comedians or talk show hosts who you don't associate with being in films showing up in films and doing a good job um and maybe even having films built around them um but yeah. uh, i just i didn't expect it but i thought he was wonderful and he and the the, the pompousness again i suppose in in a similar way to 20th century um, it's a slightly different yeah. character but his character is not that unlike john barrymore yeah, in this sense, he's always looking for praise, as opposed to thinking he has kind of big ideas. Um, but he has a similar pompousness. Oh, he's so great. Yeah. So have you heard of the great, great Joseph Tura? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. he, always, he always repeats great twice. Yeah. And he's constantly giving himself away by doing that, fucking idiot. Yes. I mean, that's the thing that's beautiful, <laughs> is watching idiots give themselves away. The, uh-huh. the, the, German, um, the German officer who's constantly yelling Schultz, you know, he's just, he's a perfect idiot, and I love to watch him. That's General Erhard, uh, and that's played by Sig Ruman. I think he's my favorite character in the whole film. He's both so funny and so touching and so ridiculous and so servile, right? And he gets also, he's one of those people who gets laughs out of nothing, mm. right? So when he gets scared, oh, please don't tell Hitler. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, And actually, this line where he tries to blame it all on his assistant, Schultz, Schultz, you know, and every time that word Schultz is uttered, it's a laugh, right? And and it's just brilliant architecture of comedy because, so he gets a laugh out of every time he utters Schultz, including at the end, where he tries to commit suicide, fails, and then, you know, once you hear the gun go off, then he yells, Schultz! Yeah! <laughs> it's a brilliant payoff. <laughs> And that bit was so famous that in Billy Wilder's Stalag 17, he actually plays, you know, a German officer. It's a concentration camp comedy, Stalag 17. And he plays a character called Schultz. All right. So, sig- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you know, it's a, it's a bit of business that resonated in the culture to such an extent that you can then name a whole character. He can then play the whole character. Uh, based on the name, yeah, based on the punchlines that he got here. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's like Flanderization, isn't it? Like Flanders in The Simpsons kind of has, you know, one line of dialogue, says diddly, and then he becomes the breakout character, you know, yeah. sort of a little bit like that. I was thinking the other day, apropos of nothing really, about um, what we've talked about before with satire and whether it makes a difference. Because I said, oh, it's overblown. People kind of think it makes more of a difference than it does. And I was thinking about it 
And I thought I'd probably need to reevaluate that to an extent. And in the light of this as well, because it's not that it never makes a difference, but what I object to is when people say, oh, this particular film made such a difference. You know, The Great Dictator is the film that brought down Hitler. That kind of thing is nonsense. But I think, you know, in a direct sense, I think it's hard to make those arguments. But in a general sense, it is, because these things feed into the culture. And I think, you know, this is a, this is another film that does a similar sort of thing. And again, I was thinking about Mel Brooks, actually, because I was thinking about the producers, and I thought of that when I brought up this, because the thing about the producers, interestingly, is, and I think it shares this, it shares this property with To Be or Not To Be and The Great Dictator, is they are completely unambiguous about what they're saying. You can't possibly, even willfully, take them out of context and and reappropriate them, which you can do with other things. So if you look at something like Cabaret, the song uh, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, that's written by two Jews, you know, as a kind of parody of kind of Nazi sort of anthems. But that hasn't stopped white supremacist groups adopting it and using it. You know, if you look at like American History X, similar sort of thing there with, you know, the it's it's supposed to be satirising or criticising neo-Nazis, but it makes them look cool and neo-Nazis really love it. You can't do that with the producers and you can't do that with Greatest Hater and you can't do that with To Be or Not To Be. And I think that's one of their real strengths, the, com the complete uh, inambiguity of it. You know, you can't, you, like a neo-Nazi would never sing Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> they can't. But for me... Um... And and you know of course that Mel Brooks did a remake of To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, I did. Uh, so, uh, but to me, their 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 sense of humor is incomparable. You know, uh, I mean, I love Mel Brooks, but Mel Brooks is really crude, and Lubitsch is not. And um, Mel Brooks scapegoats. Yeah, someone is the butt of humor, and it can get really nasty and corrosive and angry. Yeah, Lubitsch is none of those things, you know, and I think it's very interesting because, yeah. you know, Lubitsch was also a Jew, yeah, but he was a Berliner. He was born and bred and raised in Germany. Uh, I think, you know, he wasn't trained as a comedian. What Lubitsch wanted to be always was an actor, and he trained with, you know, one of the great uh, uh, theatrical figures of, you know, the turn of the, of the 19th, 20th century, Reinhardt. Uh, he had a contract as a bit player with Reinhardt where he did Shakespeare and, you know, all of that stuff. So, you know, the major, most innovative theater director is where Lubitsch got his training. You know, and Lubitsch is a major figure, right? He was involved in the, the beginnings of UFA, right? Uh, and unlike other people who moved to America after 1933 when Hitler came into power, Lubitsch went to America in the early 1920s. I think it was 1923 or 24, right? Already as one of the great directors in the world, right? So I think his position on all of this is very different, mm. right? So, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, you don't see any anger in this film, right? Like, uh, you also don't see any nastiness even towards the Germans, right? Like, mm. I mean, they're made figures of fun, right? To be so servile and self-important and... You know, so he, he makes he makes the Nazis buffoonish, but also kind of lovable in a way, right? Like, you know, Colonel uh, Erhardt is, yeah, yeah, kind of terrible in many ways. And why don't you shoot him? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, you know, he's also 
He's also made endearing in another way. He's a lovable idiot. He can't get anything right. And he's constantly yeah. kind of easily fooled. And, that, and those are all endearing qualities, the way they played him. And this might be why, you know, I think in the 19... I think this film... I'm not too sure of the history, so people can look it up. But I think this film was only allowed to be shown in Germany, like from the 70s onwards or something. And But then it ran in a Berlin theater from the 70s until just a few years ago. Yeah, there's a wonderful documentary by Tom Tickfer on Lubitsch, where, you know, they, they try to get a street named after Lubitsch, <laughs> right? One of the great directors in the world, and they fail, right? Uh, and so, you know, they kind of, yeah, they bring in all of this information as to why he should. And one of the bits of information that I found very intriguing is that this film ran for decades in a Berlin theater, mm. right? So there's something about this film that even for Germans is acceptable, yeah? That So obviously it was a critique, it's a critique of Nazism, yeah, and so on, but it's not so um, alienating, distancing, yeah, mm. un, it's not so unknown to them or unrecognizable to them that they would reject it out route, yeah, that in fact it kept going you know, on and on, playing daily in the same theater for decades, which is quite extraordinary, I think. Yeah. All I'm trying to say is that uh, Lubitsch was a German. I mean, he was a Jew, but he was a German. He was a Berliner. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually think his nationality was Russian or something, because, you know, even though he was born in Berlin, yeah, he couldn't be a German or something. So he's always credited as being a Russian Jew or something. But really, he was born and bred in Berlin. Uh, uh, yeah, his parents, both of them had already been born in Germany, right? His, his father was born in Grodno in the Russian Empire, and his mother was born just outside Berlin, it says here. Yeah, so he is, yeah, a Berliner, and he's familiar with the people, and he's familiar with the culture, and he pokes fun at it, but he pokes fun at it in a knowing way, yeah, in a way that recognizes the types and so on. It's not like this, you know, you can imagine Mel Brooks uh, doing it and being absolutely nasty and corrosive about the Germans, right? As he had every right to be. Yeah, it's like he, he, would, he would kind of speak in broad strokes and he'd use stereotypes and that sort of thing. That's, that's more his style. I think you're right. Yeah, what I love about Lubitsch is that he's so kind and he's so wise. So... There's no one in this film that's rendered hateful, you know, kind no. of. There's no one, you know, there are people that you're meant to laugh at and there are people you're meant to laugh with, you know, and so on. But actually, even the people that you're you're laughing at, they're not evil or awful or they all have human foibles. They're all kind of rounded in some way. There's, there's something about them that makes them endearing, yeah, like mm. Captain Earhart. And what I also love about Lubitsch is that everything in the film is an attempt to delight. Yeah? You know, the costumes are there for your pleasure. You know, the jokes are there for your pleasure. He takes care with everyone. So you were saying earlier about, you know, how um, the Merchant of Venice speech, how none of them is meant to be funny. And I kind of disagree with you. So, I mean, I kind of agree in that they're all played for emotion. But they all have, well, they all, some have punchlines. 
that are visual jokes. So when he first gives the speech in the theater, as he's giving the speech, <laughs> the ringlets on the side of the hair <laughs> of the person he's giving the speech to move like a punchline to a joke, right? Like, And it's clearly deliberate, right? Because, you know, I mean, it's foregrounded, right? So it's like, you know, the wind from the the soliloquy is blowing on this piece of hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny, right? Yeah. Well, like, the situation there, I think, is played for the laugh, you know? Um, yeah. Because I think, I, I think what it is is the seriousness and the solemnity of that soliloquy is playing against the sort of ramshackle nature of where he is and the people around him. You know, it's the contrast. But I think the speech itself is still played seriously, and he gives it seriously. Yeah, yeah, he wants yeah. to play it, you know. Yes. I mean, the, you know, kind of the wonderful thing about Glubich is, you know, that he's, he's very wise and accepting of people's failures, right? You know, so Joseph Tura is an egomaniac, whatever, right? There, yeah, the wife may or may not be cheating on him, you know, but she's lovely and kind and she loves him and she wants what's good for him and she's always reassuring him. Right? Yeah. yeah, so you, you always kind of get like, you know, this this combination of elements, right? All played either for laughs or for pleasure or delight, you know, kind of the costumes, the decor, the food that's spoken <laughs> of. It's always as a source of like pleasure, yeah, or something yeah. kind of lovely. The one character who you might say, the, the one character who it would be most possible to have hate for, although I still don't think it is really, would be um, Siletsky. Because I think he's the yes. only character who's played totally seriously. And he is just... A, a sort of spy Gestapo officer who's going to give all these names to the Germans and have them all rounded up and shot. Um, and there's not a moment in his character that's played for a laugh, I think. Well, no, I don't agree. I mean, the whole seduction scene in the hotel, you know, with the food and then... You know, where she says, oh, let me read you your your name, right? Which is a ploy to get him to sign the letter. And she goes, ooh, I hope you live up to that. Why? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Kind of, you know, all of that is played to make him seem charming and respectful and, you know, a man, a sophisticated man. Yeah, like, you know. Yeah, I just didn't feel he was played for a laugh, though, you know. So, like, so in that scene... It's it's absurd that she is seducing him with this handwriting stuff, and she's being so uh, uh, sort of uh, verbally suggestive um, and that sort of thing. But you know, he, if if he were being played for last, he would be a buffoon about it. He would be falling over that sort of thing. He's not right. Like it's no. it, it plays as serious. It plays as a drama. Those those moments with him, I think they play as drama. They play as you know, this guy has the potential to cause real damage to the sort of resistance and to kill a lot of innocent people. Um, well, I think I think the thing about all of the Nazis in the film is that they're buffoonish, they're ridiculous, they're endearing, but also they're dangerous. I mean, you do get a sense of tension every time some, you know. Each one of them comes in the hotel. I mean, there is a real sense mm. of danger, you know. So, uh, so I think, you know, the way that Lubitsch manages the tone of all of it is, again, I think it's miraculous, really. I, I mean, I do think, I think I love Lubitsch more than almost any director, really. Uh, and I think this is one of his great works. 
Yeah, I think its handling of tone is really incredible, and like I said, and I think and I think one of the reasons that it is is because I think it switches deftly between the buffoonish and absurd and comic and farcical and the more dramatic, and I and I do think that. Um, it doesn't play absolutely everything for a laugh and it doesn't mean to. And so it, when it needs to build drama or build in stakes or emphasise the kind of seriousness of, of the potential of someone's behaviour and that sort of thing, it's, it's very good at that as well. And it doesn't undercut those moments as it could with laughter. You know, it could seek to undercut absolutely everything. And I think what's really good about it is it doesn't, it doesn't then do so with... It doesn't have kind of mawkish sentimentality or anything like that. If you, you can imagine, like, something like Jojo Rabbit, I think probably had that a bit. You yes. know, like, when it got serious, it tried to get emotional about it. And, again, that's not what happens here. Um, it's, it's much more skillfully handled, the kind of the drama. I think it's incomparable. I mean, um, I think this is a film in which absolutely everything works. You know, I mean, from the very beginning, the setup at the beginning is fantastic, right? The theme about, you know, plays and appearances and essence, you know, and acting and reality and the way that acting becomes real. Yeah, I mean, it's all kind of worked through with like an incredible precision, really, you know. And then all of the lines and the way that the laughs are set up you know, that an artist like you should be so inartistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, or kind of, oh, I wouldn't sneeze at a laugh, kind of, you know, may I make a, may I make a suggestion? No, that was, can I make an observation? I, I forget <laughs> yeah. what the exact line of dialogue. It's absolutely brilliant, right? And again, it all kind of relates to the overall, you know, kind of theme, really. Um, and I And I very much like, all of the major relationships. I, I actually also very much like, you know, the uh, relationship between the Turas, right? Yeah, kind of. You all you get the sense of like really deep affection and and understanding and acceptance of each other's foibles and yeah, uh, uh, and and yet the irritations that are real. Yeah, like kind of, you know, uh, if I die, you know, I want you to know I forgive you. But if I don't die, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know. well, that's such a Jack Benny line as well. That's such a Jack Benny thing to say. You know, I read that the role was written for him, and you can tell. You know, that's a line he would have written himself had yeah, he had yeah, the chance. Sure. You know, and the way he delivers it. But if I don't die, it's an it's unfinished business or whatever it is. <laughs> I think he's wonderful. I I really think he's absolutely fantastic in this. I think he nails the tone. I think he he has. Because no one, no one's putting on an accent or anything. They're just playing their own accents, which I think is mm. an intelligent move. And so he just plays as himself. And it's perfect for this guy who is, is like I say, he's constantly looking for praise. And it's funny every time because you know that every time he's in disguise and he's trying to get information out of someone or do something, he's going to screw it up by saying, yeah. oh, by the way, isn't this actor the greatest? It's he's really good. I think this is such a, um, just a great film because everyone's great, right? And actually, it has one of those supporting casts that is made up of people that everyone in the time would have recognized. That actually, you know, people like us who um, are not of the period, you know, but who nonetheless see a lot of classic films, you know, I, I, I recognize almost all of the supporting casts. Mm. Right, they all get their brilliant little moments. Right, you know the, the the guy who plays Hitler, 
you know, the the director of the of the show who then kind of reappears, uh, the 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 guy who 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 is the ham, Lionel Atwell is the actor, yeah, who keeps hitting his head in the lamp, right? And again, you know, you yeah. can see how how sometimes hitting the your head on the lamp is funny the first time, and afterwards, what's funny is the way in which it is repeated, the repetition in a different context. It's just so funny, right? Or the way that, you know, he's always asked to damp down what he says, right? It's like, yeah. you know, behind the Nazi's back. Damn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Yeah, and then they have that argument after they've, after they've been trying to fool some Nazi and he says, you know, it all went well until he started trying to act. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you ruined the whole thing. <laughs> that's, again, that's one of the things that I really like. I mean, the, cent- the, the kind of central conceit of this group of actors using their acting abilities and makeup and so on to act as spies is a clever idea and it's a funny idea. To be resistance, actually, is fantastic. Yeah, but like the, but the specific thing of like, well, are we actors so we can do this? And then it becomes like playing a scene, you know? So when they get the yeah. one up, the, the uh, Seletsky in at the start, and, he, and Jack Benny's constantly leaving the room, he's going, I'm running out of dialogue, you know, <laughs> like it's a scene. I think that, that's a really beautiful little idea. Yes. Well, I'm so glad you liked it because, you know, I kind of, um, I think we began seeing it one time, but it was clearly just in the wrong mood or something. It might have been. So, um, yeah, I'm very glad you, you've seen it. I really do love uh, Lubitsch almost uh, above any director because... You know, he's one who, on one level, seems very superficial. Yeah, he doesn't, you know, he charms everything. Actually, this is kind of unusual in that he doesn't normally rock the boat, right? Like, you know, he he, he had this thing about, you know, the world being such an unsteady and unstable place that the most you could hope for is to, like, skate elegantly on the surface of things right you know uh and in a way that's what all his films do but actually the paradox is that they do so with great depth you know like if you've seen in Nochka, it's still this great critique of communism you know if you see this film it's really like this great critique of nazism but it's all done through through surface first surfaces and lightness and yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, I think it's it's very beautiful. I I think the strength of the critique of Nazism in it, which is an interesting, it's a good thing to pick up on, is. I I think it's not in the, um, ridicule of its ideology because I don't think there really is one in this, but it's in the personalization of how the people in it behave, how Nazis behave and how they think and how they're made to you know so the, you've got the one Nazi uh, I think it's the guy constantly saying Schultz who says. You know, oh, please don't give me up to Hitler. Please don't let him know. You know, and it's yeah. just, it's like saying something against him, and then immediately forget. And the, and the thing at the start, actually, to be fair, it's in the it's in the play within a play at the start where they're all saying Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, um, and it's absurd. Actually, there's a moment like that in Jojo Rabbit, which probably picks, it's probably you know, inspired by that, where yeah. they just say Heil Hitler five hundred times because everyone has to say it to everyone, um, and you can't not say it because you you know that that would be a betrayal and against Nazism and so on. That is where the strength of the satire of Nazism is. You know, it doesn't... Yeah, though it goes... I think it goes a little bit behind that because, you know, the very last... One of the very last things in the film, when they get on the airplane and they say, oh, Hitler wants to talk to you. And they go in the back and Hitler says, jump! And they jump out of the plane. 
I mean... Yeah, well, I think that goes with what I'm saying. I think that's the same sort of thing. It's about the behaviours right, inside, okay. as opposed to saying, you know, it's not about saying this is what uh, this is what Nazis wanted, so on and so forth. It's about it's about actually within this kind of regime, the psychology yes. of how you're made to behave and how you're made to think. That is what yes. the satire is, because that is very easy to 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 look at and go, God, that's so absurd, which it is, you know, because it's absurd as going, if I tell you to jump out of a plane, you'll jump. Yeah. yeah, without a parachute. Though, the film also um, underlines the fear that people lived with, right? So the how Hitler is always like a nervous, you know, kind of when they make the joke about him being a cheese, it was like oh Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like you know. So so the sense of always living in fear uh, is very present. So the servility, you know, the blindly following orders, the buffoonishness. You know, kind of all of that is 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 very much highlighted in the film, and actually, you know, I don't want to leave the podcast without just kind of talking about the beauty of the comedy. You know, the way that things get repeated, like you know, that how Hitler, how Hitler joke, is like repeated endless times again in different contexts. You know, with a slightly different punchline from how myself, right? Like you know, yeah, to, yeah. And 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 actually, the comedy often comes out of the the rhythm of the repetitions, right, or the alteration of those rhythms, right. It actually is 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 really quite brilliant. It really is all about the timing, you know. Mm. Uh, um, so yeah, kind of, it's it's a great film. And also in the in the people, it kind of it shares out the attention it gives to its characters quite a lot, I think. So you know, at the end, um, when they when they talk about Hitler's going to be at this. Uh, uh, opera house and Carol Lombard says oh I can get us in there because every Gestapo officer I've spoken to has turned to jelly you think oh yeah and then they go no 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 we, we can't use you they don't like women in there and and the, the plan becomes something else and it gets someone else gets the attention in fact it ends up on Greenberg gets the attention you know yes which I think is interesting I think it's a I think it's a, a smart you know she's had enough attention by this point the film gives it to someone else <laughs> yes it kind of it spreads that out it's it's got a generosity of spirit, this film, that extends to everyone, including all of the bit players who get their moment, yeah. you know? Although I wish it had been a bit clearer at that point about... Because uh, I thought they were going to kill Hitler. And the reason I thought that was because uh, when the... I think it's the director who says Hitler's going to be at its opera house, and he says, do you remember when we did Murder at the Opera? And someone says it was a flop. He says, well, it might be again. And I thought, oh, does that mean murder, right? Does that mean they're going to kill... And then so when they distract all the Gestapo officers with Greenberg and they get him away, because you've seen Hitler enter the theatre, so you think, oh, right, so they've got a chance to kill him. That's what I thought was going to happen. And so when they were just leaving, I thought, oh... And it was only when they got on the plane I realised, oh, that's Hitler's plane, right, that makes sense. But I I wish it had been a bit clearer about that before then. I think that was a reasonable mistake. For me to have made. Yeah. I mean, I think if you see it now again, you'll find it perfectly clear. Mm. I did go back and have a look. Uh, I thought... "Mm." Because there is talk about the plane beforehand, but it's not addressed as Hitler's plane beforehand. They just say, we've got a plane going to Switzerland on Thursday. Here's two tickets. I think think it could have been a bit clearer, but... It's a a new... Yeah, I didn't have any problem with that. Um, Anyway, I'm very glad you saw it. Um, Yes, I might. So, any last words on it? I rather liked it, you know? Good movie. I mean, you rather like it's one of the great masterpieces of the cinema. You rather everything like in it. moderation, Jose. <laughs> uh, it's very, very good, and you know, it's it's um, 
one can only imagine how it would have been received at the time, really. Like, even if there are similar things now, you know, I can't think of an example offhand, but, but there must be examples more recently of people going, people doing something great and it being taken as too soon or in bad taste and so on and so forth. Um, but one can only sort of imagine how it would have been received at the time. And clearly it's a bold and brave film to have made at the time, you know. Very much so. And also it's supremely elegant and sophisticated. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it's played very high, you know, kind of. It's, it's, it, it's played at a level of incredible sophistication where, you know, the, I mean, there's a whole thing, oh, that's so unrealistic. And actually this film is really, has nothing to do in a way with realism in the sense that, you know, it's all about fakery, right? Mm. But, but actually about fakery that reveals truths you know, when played very high, very polished, very sophisticated, which I think is what this film also is. And I think to, to compare it once more to Mel Brooks, I think that is that is actually the central difference. And I think you pick up on something something really apt, really really appropriate when you talk about Lubitsch being German and Mel Brooks being American. Because uh, I think that, in some way, that really actually centrally speaks to the difference in sensibilities. Because this is someone who lived in this, and and although, as you say, he didn't escape it himself, having left Germany uh, long before this, you know, he will have had family. They will have known people there. It will have been closer to his heart because it's his country, America. A lot of a lot of his family was killed. The American sensibility is different. It's more aggressive, and it also it, it makes me think of Sid Caesar as well. You know, the Sid Caesar, the Nazi character he used to do who again was b- buffoonish and loud and brass and brash and stuff and it's like um that is that is much more in the mel brooks mode of uh being very over the top and in broad strokes and stereotypical and that sort of thing and you know there's pl- there's a place for that but actually the subtlety and the sensitivity and the complexity with which the characters are handled here is as yeah very sophisticated as you say i think that's the right word for it and it plays very well. It's also wiser and kinder. Yeah. Uh, you know, because Lubitsch was intimately familiar with the actions of the Nazis. In fact, you know, I think he returned to Germany in 1933 to um, publicize a film. He had a, a big press conference at the Hotel Adlon. You know, and this happened just at the time when the Nazis kind of took over, right? And, and you know, because he'd been one of the great figures of Weimar Germany. He directed some of the most popular films of the era. Yeah, he was a national figure in Germany, Lubitsch, right? But, of course, he was Jewish. So, you know, kind of when the Nazis came in and then all the Kristallnacht stuff, and, you know, he would have known. And in fact, he supported a lot of people getting out of Germany. He supported them in America. He was actually intimately familiar yeah. with all that the Germans were doing, right? So it's this this thing of, you know, it's your homeland, it's your language, you know, it's your culture. And on the other hand, there's all this hatred directed at people like you. He was, he was familiar with all of that in a way, you know, that uh, uh, Mel Brooks just was not mm-hmm. but he had a he had a a more a wiser more understanding idea of what it is to be human i think than mel brooks does yeah i think that's probably true um 
But the producers is still really good. Well, the first one is. The, the, <laughs> the, uh, the remake was crap. I hope people discover Lubitsch, because really, he's, he's an endless source of delights. I mean, you know, I've seen this film, I don't know now, about 20 times. And, and it just gets better each time, and you notice more things, and, you know, kind of, you admire the mechanics and the structure, and, you know, and the actors and the line readings. Almost, it's on almost every level, it gets greater and greater and greater. So, uh, do see it if you get a chance. Yeah, it's good. It's a good film. <laughs> Thank you very much for <laughs> listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies, and uh, the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>